Good morning, everybody. Happy National Grouchy Morning Sunday. Uh, Although this is the second service, so the effects of that should be wearing off for most of you by now. Um, Anybody uh, usually go to first service and just switched it up today? Okay, one honest person in this room. Two, two. It's like, I'm just gonna, three. There we go. See, that's what happens. That's an, that's, that's here. I'm gonna go on a side tangent. It's the importance of like small groups because no one wants to own up to stuff going on in their life. Then one person confesses. One brave woman raised her hand and then a domino. Oh yeah, okay, pastor. Yeah, I'm, yeah, okay. So uh, another important thing, this was in your handout, this little Easter sheet. Uh, Easter, as you know, is, is a, it's a big day for us. We have tons of new people and guests, and so we want to be as hospitable as possible. And so with that, Easter just takes more volunteers. So if you could help us out in any way by volunteering on Easter, you could use the QR code or fill this out and someone will um, get back to you. But there's uh, several categories listed that we could use help in. Hospitality, children, youth, parking, security, setup, teardown, and then my favorite, just the last box, greatest need. It's sort of like, wherever there's a need, all help. So uh, if, if you can do that on Easter, that would help us just make the overall Easter kind of hospitality and experience greater for the um, number of guests that we'll have. Okay, Matthew. Uh, we are in a sort of transition point in the Gospel of Matthew where everything up to this point for the last like three months has been epic and grand and huge. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He's fulfilling prophecy. He's he's said to be the son of David. He's doing miracles. His teachings are epic and grand and huge. He speaks about the destruction of the temple, the end of the age, the second coming of the son of man. Everything is big, huge, and epic. And now today, all of a sudden, it's kind of going to, and it's going to get small, tiny, close, and intimate. And something will occur in a house in Bethany that will be so significant that Jesus says, whenever and wherever the gospel is preached, this story will be included. That's how important it is. So we're gonna go from grand and large and epic to small and intimate, but it is of utmost significance. Now, the setting, the setup for the story takes place a few verses prior. Matthew 26, verses one through two. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Important note, after Jesus had finished all of these sayings, that phrase has occurred in the Gospel of Matthew several times. Typically, Jesus will be teaching for several chapters and then it'll say, and when Jesus was done teaching, then this happened and then there'll be a narrative kind of play for the next few chapters where you see Jesus doing miracles, actions, and deeds, but a teaching section has ended. We've just ended the last formal teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, the last final discourse. So when this says, Jesus finished all these sayings, he now turns to the rest of the narrative, and we are sort of in the final chapters, if you will. The cross is before Jesus, death is before Jesus, betrayal is before Jesus. He's finished teachings, now there's just work to be done. Additionally, there's an interesting sort of image that's given to us. He says that he's going to be handed over and that the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now we've talked about this phrase, Son of Man, all throughout the Gospel of Matthew and how it comes from Daniel chapter seven. 
But in this image, you have the Son of Man being crucified, which is very interesting because last week we talked about the Son of Man. If you were here, do you remember the context that surrounded Jesus' discussion on the Son of Man? We're in the parable of the sheep and the goats, and Jesus says that the Son of Man will come, important phrasing, in his own glory. He has his own particular glory in and of himself. He's coming in his own glory and will sit on a glorious throne, and then he will judge the nations. So this is an image that is taking place in the highest of highs, like the highest of heavens. The son of man basking in the bliss of his own glory, sitting on his own glorious throne, judging the nations. It doesn't get any more grand. It doesn't get higher than that. But now we have a different image of the son of man. Just several verses later, the son of man will be handed over to be crucified. These are like polar opposites. These are extremes. One is the best picture you can get, and one is the worst image imaginable. We go from the highest of heavens to literal hell on earth. We go from Jesus sitting on a throne to Jesus hanging in agony on a cross. And these two images inform our understanding of the Son of Man. This saying would have been so radical to his hearers, we're we're not even quite sure, historically speaking, how they are even processing that. Like, how does it compute in their existing framework? Yes, son of man, in glory, on his throne, judging the nations, but hanging crucified on a cross. Like, how are they, how are they interpreting that? It goes on. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. We'll learn more about this guy Caiaphas in the coming weeks as we kind of journey through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. But suffice to say for now, he's the high priest and he's been the high priest for quite some time, which historically speaking, is, it stands out because normally high priests are appointed and disposed by Rome like very quickly all the time. So for Caiaphas to be serving as high priest for as long as he has at this point means he's, he's sort of mastered the art of working with Rome. Or another way, a more cynical way of looking at it, he's mastered the art of being uh, compromised and collaborating with Rome. So we'll, we'll talk more about him later, but that's what you need to know for now. And as these religious leaders gather, they're plotting to kill Jesus, but they know they have to be extremely careful about it. Why? Because it's Passover. That means thousands upon thousands upon thousands of other people that normally don't live in Jerusalem are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this holiday. There certainly would have been a lot of people coming down from Galilee, the region where Jesus grew up, coming down. Jesus has the ear of the people. He has the hearts of the people at this point in the narrative. And so we can't just go about killing this guy on Passover. Passover is the holiday that reminds us of God delivering his people from the bad guys. And so you might be thinking, Jesus symbolically cleanse the temple. Maybe now he will cleanse Israel of Rome with 10,000 upon 10,000 of people who are there serving as soldiers. And maybe while he's doing that, he kicks out the existing religious establishment because he's had some tough stuff to say to them in the previous five, six chapters, right? So like all the ingredients are there. It's revolution time. It's Passover time. There's a standing army of an extra several tens of like tens of thousands of extra people. And so the religious leaders got to be careful how they go about doing this. 
Jesus could have begun a revolution that would overthrow Rome in that region. Now, of course, Rome would come back and it wouldn't just end there. The violence would lead to violence. However, there were certainly people there that wanted him to not just cleanse the temple, but cleanse Israel of the oppressor. That's not what Jesus is going to do. There's a different path for Jesus. And we get a glimpse of what that path looks like in the house in Bethany. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. So do you feel sort of like the scene and narrative shift? Huge, epic, look at the temple, it's coming down. This is what it's gonna look like at the coming of the Son of Man at the end of the age to, we're in a room, in a house, and they're likely like sharing a meal. It's a very intimate scene. It says they're reclining at a table. First century Israel, you would have ate dinner or a meal by kind of being in a circle, kind of half laying down, half sitting up. So that's sort of what they're doing. They're reclining around a table. This is an intimate scene. And a woman comes, and she has an alabaster flask or a jar, and it has ointment in it. And she begins to pour it upon the head of Jesus. This is roughly what that jar would have looked like. It's made of alabaster, which is a mineral that basically functions as a a soft rock, so you can carve statues or figurines or make containers out of it. And so when you think about the ointment in it, think more about like like an oil, picture an oil rather than an ointment. And likely, we can't be certain, but likely uh, these things are sealed in such a way that it's not like there's just this top that can screw on or off. You break the top off completely because the top is sealing that to preserve what's inside, usually something very important and expensive. So this woman breaks the top off and begins to pour the contents of it upon the head of Jesus. And then we need to kind of figure out sort of the characters and who's involved. It says at this house in Bethany, and it's the house of Simon the leper, which is like fascinating because you should immediately be asking, like, does this guy have leprosy? And the answer is no, because no one is going to be sitting around a table eating, someone with, eating dinner with someone who has leprosy in first century Jerusalem. It's just not going to happen. And so you go, okay, well, then he used to have leprosy. And that's likely the case. We can't be certain, but this man likely had leprosy. Maybe he had it years ago, and whatever the disease was, the skin condition was, it cleared up. Or it's possible that he's Simon the leper and known as that because he, like, fairly recently used to have leprosy, and he ran into a guy named Jesus, and Jesus healed him. Now, one of the things you have to understand about leprosy is that the biblical word leprosy can, can refer to a host, a, a variation, a, a different sort of skin diseases. And there's different degrees of it and different levels and different types of it. But the key to understanding leprosy in the biblical imagination is that leprosy made your body look corpse-like. And so the conceptual framework of an Israelite saw leprosy as an image of death. It, it, is, it is part of the forces of death and decay that are destroying God's world. This is why it was seen as as something to be avoided at all costs. It represents the forces of death. It's turning your body into something corpse-like. So people would stray away. But this guy doesn't have it no more. 
And again, we can't be certain, but it's possible that like Jesus healed him and he used to be known as Simon the leper. And he's like, no, you know what? I kind of want that name to stick. Why? Because when you meet a new person and you go, hi, I'm Simon the leper. I used to have leprosy. You go, well, how'd you get better? Can I tell you a story about a man named Jesus that I met? You see, so it's possible. We don't know, but this guy is at least known as Simon the leper, and he doesn't have leprosy anymore, and he's sitting at a table with Jesus. This is remarkable. Okay, there's someone else there. We don't get this from Matthew, but in the Gospel of John, it informs us that there's there's a man named Lazarus there. And Lazarus is a man who was dead that was brought back to life by Jesus. Okay, think about this for a second, which means... Sitting at the table with Jesus are people who used to have leprosy and used to be dead. The image of the forces of death are clear. The forces of death are around Jesus at this table, but it's as if the forces of death have no power over the one in whom's presence they find themselves. Additionally, we know that Lazarus had two sisters. Mary and Martha, and they're there as well. And actually we find out that it is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who is the woman who breaks the alabaster flask and pours it on the head of Jesus. So like this is is all the scene that's beginning to set it up. So all of that is there when we read, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, very expensive ointment and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. It's a very beautiful scene. Not everyone is gonna see it as something beautiful. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Jesus sees this action, and, and he sees it as something beautiful, but for the disciples are like, no way, they're indignant. They're not having it. And they immediately have this, this, this kind of excuse. This could have been given to the poor. And when you understand like, how valuable this thing was, you actually might find yourself in line with the disciples. So how valuable was this alabaster flask with this ointment in it? We're told from another gospel account that what's inside of it is actually called Nard and nard is taken from something called spikenard, a plant. So think of essential, like essential oils. There's this plant, spikenard, and the essential oil version of it. It's this crushed and pressed oil that comes out of the plant. Now, spikenard, where is it located? Where does it grow? It grows in the Himalayan mountains, from China to India. Okay, it grows. It likes rocky kind of soil on cliffs and mountains, and typically will grow at an altitude of 10,000 feet to 15,000 feet. Okay, now put yourself in the ancient context. How easy is it to get pure essential oil extract from a plant that grows in the Himalayan mountains at 10 to 15,000 feet and get it to Israel? It's very expensive stuff. How expensive? We are told in one of the other gospel accounts that it's roughly 300 denarii. Denarii is a day's wage. So we are talking something that's close to approximating like a yearly salary in this jar. That's how precious and expensive this oil is. 
In the Gospel of John, there's the story of Jesus um, feeding the 5,000 people. Remember the fish and the loaves? In that, there's this interaction between him and one of the disciples, and he's like, one of the disciples says, even if we got like two, 200 denarii, man, we, we, that's not enough to feed the people. It, it, it'd be almost enough. So what we are talking about is a sum of money that could potentially feed 5,000 not just people, because if you go back to that story, people represent family units. I'm talking about like 5,000 family units. That's how much this is worth. So then you find yourself almost aligned with the disciples, like, oh, we appreciate the nice gesture to Jesus, but, you know, we could have, maybe we should spend this money differently. You know, it's always interesting how morally virtuous and generous we become when we're dealing with other people's money. You know what I mean? Oh, I don't think they should have spent that. That, that money could have been used better. Uh, if they're a Christian, they should have done this. How much of your personal income are you giving away? You know? It's really easy to be critical and judge other people for how they spend their money. <laughs> but when it's like, oh, it's back at me, it's, it's like a big, it's a big different thing. And usually, here's the truth, and this is true of our culture for sure. There's not a scarcity of resources it's not like there's a lack of resources. There's usually a lack of generosity and an abundance of greed that keeps things and needs from being taken care of. Like if everyone who claims to be a Christian in this country started to give to the church and the church would then use that for the work of the ministry, like we, things would change overnight almost. It'd be incredible. So you always have to check yourself because if you're honest, you're kind of like with the disciples, right? Like, man, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. If I had that much money, I would certainly know how to use it rightly. It's like everyone's an expert when it's someone else's money. So how does Jesus respond to this? Jesus, aware of this, kind of their attitude and what they're saying, says to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. So the disciples are concerned about the money being used for the poor. And Jesus, if we're honest, almost gives this, like, this callous response like, oh, you always have the poor with you. Let her give this to me. Give it to me. Don't worry about them. Which is, which is it's kind of difficult because we've seen the heart of Jesus all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Like, Jesus cares about those in need, the vulnerable, the last, the lost, and the least of them. He cares. But then there's this kind of, like, don't worry about them. You always got those guys. Me. But you have to understand, whenever you run into difficult passages in the Scriptures, usually it's because of our lack of awareness of the Hebrew Scriptures that are being employed. And so Jesus isn't just saying something random. You always have the poor with you. He's quoting the Hebrew scriptures. He's quoting Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 15 says this. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Jesus quotes a passage in Deuteronomy which commands care for the poor and the needy. It's commanded in Deuteronomy, but Deuteronomy also says you will always have that. The poor will always need people to care for them and help them. You will always, ha you will always have the opportunity to help those in need. 
Like, think about this. You will never be robbed of the opportunity to help someone in need because there's always gonna be people in need. So Jesus says, you always have this, but right now for this moment, I'm about to leave. I am at the end. Did you not just hear what I said? I'm gonna be handed over to be crucified. This woman has done a beautiful thing. She has done a beautiful thing. And what is the thing that she's doing? Jesus says, she's preparing me for burial. Now at this time period, when someone would die, they would obviously be anointed with oils and there would be spices because the smell of the decaying corpse would be significant. And so there's all these extra smells that would be used to disguise the decaying corpse. And Jesus says, this woman's done a beautiful thing. She's anointed me for burial. And Jesus looks at this act as an act of love. And when you see the woman, you see, you see her acting in a way that's, this is like an unadulterated, uncompromised outpouring of her very self, like, Lord, I love you. She's taking that which is most valuable, like 300 denarii's worth, something extremely, the most valuable thing she has, and she's pouring about, pour upon Jesus. It's as if to say that my most valuable earthly material possession is nothing and insignificant to the worth of the one who is before me. And this is just pouring out of her very being, just giving it to Jesus. Jesus, you, you have my heart, you have it all. Take it. And she doesn't, it's not like how we would do it, you know? You'd break the alabaster flask, pour a little bit, gotta save this, I'm gonna sell this at the market. 80% goes to, you know, I'm just only gonna give 10 or 20, 30% to Jesus. She's, it's like, it's as if her love overtakes her in the moment that she can't resist, like just giving that which is most valuable to her Lord. And Jesus says, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. The disciples they sort of have, it, have, an, have an issue with it. Could have been used otherwise. But what the woman understands is that in one sense, she's making a great sacrifice, her most valuable thing. But in, an, in another sense, she's not making a sacrifice at all because the one whom she has is greater than whatever she's about to give up. And in a sense, that's true of all of us all the time. Like we use language and it's appropriate in one sense. I've sacrificed a lot to serve the Lord. I gave up this for the Lord. But when you have a proper understanding of his true worth, you understand, I didn't give up any, I didn't make any sacrifice. I didn't give up anything. I got rid of this to get something so much more precious, so much more valuable. It doesn't even compare. I didn't give up anything compared to what I got. Everything I got, I count it lost. Like it's rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. And this was this woman kind of intuitively feels it. This, 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 this is not worth, it's not worth it compared to knowing Jesus. Disciples, again, are, are critical, though. They, they look at her and they can, they're, they're saying, like, you could have done other good things with this. And what the disciples are failing to see is that they think there is some good things to be done and they are forgetting that the very grounds of goodness itself is in their midst. Like the grounds of all goodness is with them. 
and they forget the, the, the surpassing value of that goodness and they're worried about these other things. And so what the jar, the alabaster jar reminds us of is that you can, you can develop a heart for things that are good, but you can develop a heart for things that are good like a heart for missions, a heart for ministry, a heart for mercies, a heart for the poor, a heart, heart for the vulnerable. You can develop a heart that is so great for those things and yet still untether them from a heart from God. And when you do that, some bad things can happen. A lot of mistakes happen when we develop, what we do is we take a, something that's good, like caring for the poor, and we make it the ultimate thing. We make it the ultimate aim, the supreme thing. And when you do that, you get the order of things wrong and some bad things can happen. Lots of things. I'll give you two, 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 two mistakes that can occur. You, you can be so focused on doing these external good things that, again, you forget who they're actually done for and unto. And then unknowingly, those good things can actually take the place of the ultimate goodness of Christ himself. See, oftentimes we just think of like bad things becoming most important in our life, but there's good things. I'll give you a, a, an example that will be like crystal clear and it, it, it proves the point powerfully. You can have someone who loves God so much they love God, they say, I wanna spend my life in, in doing nothing else but ministry. And maybe it's missions overseas, maybe it's, maybe it's a, a pastoral ministry role, whatever it may be. You can begin to love doing the work of the ministry to such a degree that you actually begin to love ministry more than the one who you're supposed to be doing it for. And this could be true of anything. It could be true of a pastor in ministry, someone in missions and evangelism, someone whose career, their business, whatever project they're doing, it's a good thing, but it becomes the ultimate thing. And now all of a sudden, the, the order and hierarchy of values is all distorted. And it's as if the lesser good becomes the ultimate good. And a different way to phrase that would be the lesser good actually becomes God. Because God, by de definition, is that which should be most valuable to you. And it could destroy you. You could do this with something, and we've talked about this example in the past. You can do this with your kids. You make your kids functional gods in your life. And guess what happens? You hurt your relationship with them because they can't bear the weight of being your functional god. And so you could see this take place in all different ways. A second mistake occurs with this when... Um, we begin, we concern ourselves on these external good things, which are good in and of, by themselves, but we concern ourselves so much with them that then we start to convince ourselves, or we are attempting to convince ourselves, that these external deeds are what justify us before God and others. So it's sort of like, look at me, Jesus, how much good I do. I'm doing this. Look how much I've given to, to the poor. Jesus, look at, look at how awesome I am, type of thing. Or to other people. Well, you know, I give and I do so much. And, and, and what happens is self-righteousness sneaks in. You begin to think highly of yourself and less of others because you're so good. Do you see the snare? Do you see the trap? And that's how self-righteousness creeps in. 
It's like I'm just justifying myself before people or trying to earn my justification before God. Now, it's a dangerous trap. And an author by the name of C.S. Lewis understood this very well. I'm going to read to you a quote from a book called The Screwtape Letters. And it's, it's, it's a great book, probably top 100 books ever written. Really, I mean that. Um, you should read it, like, every year. Um, it's, that, it's that good. Uh, but I have to do some setup for the quote because the Screwtape Letters takes place in a, in, a, in, in a weird world. In a weird world. Okay. Well, it's not weird, but it, it's kind of weird. Because it's true, but it's not true. It's fictional, but it's, it's, it's fiction that's so true, it's more true than true type of thing. Um, so in the Screwtape Letters, the book is basically a collection of letters that are written from a demon to another demon. And it's an uncle demon who's writing to his nephew. And the nephew is kind of the new demon on the scene, and he's learning how to be uh, a tempter. So the uncle demon, who's like an experienced demon, is trying to teach the young demon how to be a better demon and tempt people and draw humans away from God. And it's interesting because in, in the book, um, they don't say God, they say the enemy. So when you're reading it, it could be confusing because the enemy isn't Satan. The enemy to the demons is the maker. So they talk about, you can't let him turn to the enemy. Okay. So you have this uncle demon writing to nephew demon about how to get people to turn from God. And in it, the, new, the young demon, the nephew demon, has just been assigned a new person, a new human to draw away from God. And um, he's been assigned to a young man, and the book is taking place in the World War II era. And so this young man is now going to fight in World War II, okay? And the demons are talking about how they can overwhelm him with fear and anxiety, but they're like, wait, wait, be careful, because if someone feels that death is around the corner, all of a sudden they could begin to start turning to the maker. And then, and then the little demon's wondering about, like, what ideology should I get him to, to saturate himself in? And he's going, I could try to do both extremes. Maybe we should make him, maybe how do I get him to, to fall away from the maker? Is it an extreme form of pacifism where he may be indifferent to evil? Or should we make him like so committed to the war effort that no matter what, like the ends justifies me no matter what, just follow the orders of the country and do what do do what they say and kill the bad guys. And so they're wondering like what ideological system they should tempt him with. And this is, it's brilliant. The uncle demon says like, oh, none of that matters. The experienced demon, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What you want to get him to do is to take whatever ideology it is and elevate it to the point that it replaces God. Now listen to how he phrases this. This is incredible. This is profound literature. Uncle demon talking to nephew demon. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as a part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely a part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism. 
The attitude which you want to guard against is that which temporal affairs are treated primarily as material for obedience. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. In other words, let him choose whatever good path he thinks he's on. But slowly, make him believe that Christianity serves that cause. So in other words, the faith becomes a servant of his particular interest. You follow this. Faith, Christianity, becomes a servant of the lesser good. And in doing so, you've inverted the hierarchy. And now it's actually this cause that's number one and Christianity serves it rather than the whole of oneself serving God and all good deeds flowing out of that. This is profound. It really is profound. C.S. Lewis would also go on to say in a different writing, there is but one good, that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. So it's not as if there's no other goodness. It's just that that goodness has to be participating in the goodness of God. We sing a song, the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Earlier during worship, Drew read a passage that talk about every good and perfect gift comes from the father of life. Christ is the grounds of goodness itself. He is the foundation for the category of goodness. And what we can do unknowingly is take smaller goods, lesser goods, things that actually are good, but raise them up so they become chief in our life. And then we use everything else to serve it. And pretty soon you're now using the cost of Christ as a servant for what you think is the right thing to do in a moment, rather than bringing all things into submission under the cross of Christ. Do you see how wise that uncle demon was? It's very subtle. And then you find yourself a pastor and you love the ministry and care for the ministry more than you do about faithfulness to God. Or your parent who loves your children so much that you don't really care about what the Bible says about parenting them. You just use the Bible as a means to parent them. So when they're not doing what you'd want, let me give you, look at what the Bible says. But you yourself have no love for what the word says. You're just using it as a tool. Who is the servant in that place? Do you see this? This is profound. And so what this woman does is she has things rightly ordered. I'm before the grounds of goodness itself. I'm not gonna hold anything back. I lose nothing by giving giving everything to him. And then this section ends with this. Jesus responds to the situation and says, truly, I say to you, Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What she did is so, her heart and what she did is so profound. Wherever the gospel is told, the story will be told. Now, Jesus is doing something here. Jesus is tying together several different themes and elements that normally ought not to be tied together. This entire section for the last several chapters has been about the death of Jesus. The religious establishment has turned on him. They're plotting to kill him. Jesus tells his disciples, I will be handed over and I will be crucified. 
Then he tells the disciples that Mary's actions are actually preparing him for burial. Do you follow this? Death, 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 death. It's all about death. And she's preparing me for death, my burial. But in the middle of that, he also says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, we're going to tell this story. Now you have to pause because it's real subtle, but he just tied the theme of death together with the word gospel. In Greek, euangelion. It means good news. So follow this. Check this out. It's, it's, this is incredible. Death, 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 and Jesus ties it together with good news. Death, 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 yet good news. And this good news will be so great and so powerful, it will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Jesus is going to hang from a cross in agony. And days prior to this, he's saying, yes, that's all gonna happen. But yet the announcement of some incredible news, news that will be the greatest news you can ever imagine, that news will be announced to the whole world. Because Jesus knew that the forces of death had no power over him. He could sit at a table with the forces of death. And although he would be handed over and crucified and go into the depths of death itself, death shall not have power over him. He will be raised on the third day and the son of man will be vindicated and he will come in his own glory and sit on his glorious throne and he will judge the nations. Death, 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 good news. Now this is how you get these two images to work together. The son of man sitting in his own glory on his glorious throne judging the nations but yet also the son of man hanging from a cross. Because in his death and in his sufferings, he was disarming the powers and principalities that rule the present evil age. And so it's precisely because this son of man goes to the cross to suffer and to die, that is precisely why he will be resurrected and return in power and glory. So the one who sits on the throne is also the one who hangs on the cross. That is the true identity of the son of man. Yes, death, yes, burial, but also resurrection. And the two extremes come together in the person and work of Jesus. So there's this woman who pours out everything. Most precious, valuable thing she has, she pours it out, holds nothing back. But there is also one who will pour out everything and hold nothing back. There is one who will come that will be more valuable and more costly than anything God's good green earth has ever seen. The son of God will come. He who is most valuable will pour out himself entirely. He will hold nothing back. And the son of God will give up his life completely to save those whom he loves. He pours himself out in order to save his people. Nothing is held back. Now here's the the key to tying this all together. Christ does that out of love for his people. Why do we love God? Because he first loved us. This is the order and the rhythm and the flow of the logic. We didn't love God. We weren't like so special that, oh yeah, I, I got all this stuff figured out. The scriptures say, We love because Christ first loved us. And because Christ first loved us and we see what he did to demonstrate his love for us, in turn, we can then say, I love you too. Christ is the one who says, I love you. 
in the cross, in his suffering. And when you see and behold that, Christ's love awakens something in you and then you could return that love and say, I love you too, but make no mistake about it. I fell in love with you because of your great love for me and what you did for me on my behalf. And then because Christ first loves us and then we in turn can love him, out of that love and relationship can flow the good deeds that we are commanded to do out of that love, then flows the good deeds, and then those good things are put in their proper order because they're not being fueled to justify yourself before God. They're not being fueled to justify yourself before people. The fuel for living like this is actual love for God. Say, I love you, God. How could I not? When you you know what he did for you, how, how does your heart not say, I love you too? I love you too, I wanna serve you. And out of that love then, it's like, it's as if then living waters are poured into us and then flow out of us to the rest of the world. Do you see how this works? It's not arbitrary connections in the scriptures. There's a connection to all of these things. Christ, you love me and I love you too. And out of that love flows living waters to the rest of the world. And then when you see a a human being in need, you care all the more. Why? Because when you see a human being, you're seeing someone else suffering who's made in the image of God. And when you see another person made in the image of God, you are looking at someone so valuable that Christ died for them. How could I not want to help? How could I not want to serve my Lord? And these things just, they flow from us. So the more you fix your eyes upon Jesus and what he's done for you, the more everything else will fall into place. The order, the hierarchy of your values will begin to make sense and you will be empowered to live rightly before God. Now, one last thing. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 says this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What's your identity in this passage? Beloved children. Beloved children. Loved of the Father, loved by the Son, loved by the Spirit. And, and, and how do we begin to love God? Well, it's because Christ loved us first and gave himself up for us. And then this is very interesting, very interesting. It says he's a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And this fragrant offering, that's imagery from the Old Testament where there's like incense burning, there's an aroma of sacrifice that goes up before God and it's pleasing. So this is an Old Testament image about sacrifice and worship of God. Okay. Now what I'm about to say is not explicitly stated in the scripture. It's not as if Matthew draws attention to this. It's not as if the gospel writers are saying, hey, look at this, this is super cool. But there's something, I mean, this is fascinating to me that takes place because of this anointing. So remember how much that oil was? How much it was worth? Um, A normal person doesn't drop like a, a... a year's worth of salary on top of their head. You know, that's not, the, norm, the normal person in the villages don't go, oh, here's something that's worth a year's worth of wages. Yeah. 
It doesn't happen. That type of thing, that, uh, that amount of worth being put on someone's head was reserved for like the king or maybe royalty or like the most like filthy rich people in the culture imaginable. But typically that type of anointing that's gonna cost that much is reserved for a king. Mary anoints Jesus with oil fit for a king. And she does this in the last week of his life. Which means, as Jesus is going around in the last week of his life, he is going around smelling like royalty. Now you have to understand that when Jesus is up in the upper room and they're about to take Passover, the smell of that spikenard from the east, from the Himalayans, would have filled the room. It would have lasted for days. Jesus spends the last week of his life smelling like royalty. He goes to a cross where they put a crown of thorns. Thorns, by the way, are an image of the curse. They put the image of the curse as a crown upon the head of Jesus. His hair would smell of royalty, but you would see someone with the image of the curse upon their brow. And in this, you see the image of the Son of Man sitting in glory and the Son of Man hanging on a cross come together perfectly. He is the true king, anointed as the true king of Israel. On top of the cross, it reads, King of the Jews. This is everything we've been hoping for. Here is where all of our hope rests. He is Messiah which, by the way, has something very important to say about this whole anointing thing. We call Jesus, Jesus, because in Hebrew, his name is Yeshua. And we also call Jesus, Jesus Christ. Christ is not a name, it's his title. Yeshua is the name, Christ is a title. Christ in English comes from the Greek word Christos, which comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach. Now, the root of the word Mashiach is Meshach, and that's the word that we use to anoint something. So check this. You Meshach anoint something, and the Mashiach is the anointed one. As the woman is preparing this man for burial, she Meshahs, she anoints the anointed one with anointing oil. This is telling you with crystal clear clarity exactly who this person is. He isn't just Jesus of Nazareth. He is Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God, the one who will come in his own glory and sit on his throne. And he does that because he loved his people so much that he would hang on a cross and suffer in their place. And when you know that, how can you not love him? How can you not love him? And how can not, how can not your inner affections be turned to wanting to serve him with your life and your actions? So we bring all of that together and say, Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Now let us go about your business and show the world what your love is like by being your hands, your feet, and your body. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, 
He took bread. This is my body. It's given for you. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I lay it down freely of my own will. He loves us first, and in turn, we love him. So today, we remember what it took to make us your people. The cup is the blood of the new covenant. His blood poured out for us. Jesus would go around the last week of his life smelling like royalty. And yet he would be handed over to be crucified and have his blood poured out on our behalf. And because of that, we in turn respond in love. And love produces allegiance. When you love someone, you give them your allegiance. And so in this cup, we declare our allegiance to our king. Help us to be faithful to you, Lord, till we die or till you come again. Father, we recognize that worship is the fuel. Our our love for you, your love for us is the fuel that empowers us for ministry, for mission, for caring about the problems of the world. And so as we close, may we fix our eyes and our hearts upon you, that we know that that's our fuel, that's what empowers us to be the people we ought to be. So may your son be glorified in our closing moments together, for he is worthy of all praise and all honor. We give you thanks today. We are a grateful people. In Jesus' name, amen.